back at it again. This is political theory and um, other stuff uh, with Mike and Paul. And we are doing Capitalist Realism Chapter 7. It is titled, If You Can Watch the Overlap of One Reality with Another, Capitalism or Capitalist Realism as Dreamwork and Memory Disorder. How are you, Paul? It's the whole chapter. I'm good. I'm good. Good, good. Very good. It's good to hear your voice, as good always. Good too. Beautiful day outside. Cannot complain about that. Good. It's raining here, which I'm sad about from a skateboarding later in the day standpoint, but I'm happy about from a forest fires in, yes. uh, in a couple months standpoint. Man, I forgot about that worry. It's uh, a big worry, especially someone that loves camping, but not like... Not like normal Colorado camping where you're backpacking, you're ultralighting. I really enjoy like the 1950s version of camping where I go there with my car, you know, my, uh, my cigarettes and, and whatever. I just hate not being able to have a campfire. And so if we don't get enough rain and snow, then they do a fire ban. Sometimes starting as early as fucking May. Yeah. So no, I, uh, my problem is my last two places I've lived have been temperate rainforests. So I've just kind of... Gotten used to, yeah, 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 and that's an, a nice situation to live in. Um, now we do flood a lot, uh, which okay. I wasn't accustomed to in Washington. For whatever reason, Washington didn't seem to flood that much, but out here, man, it fucking is just it. Pretty much every large rainstorm, huge portions of the town that I live in just get flooded. Do you want to start the yeah, chapter? Yeah, off? of course. All right. Once again, chapter seven, it's top of page 54. Being realistic uh, may once have meant coming to terms with a reality experienced as solid and immovable. Capitalist realism, however, entails subordinating oneself to a reality that is infinitely plastic, capable of reconfiguring itself at any moment. We are confronted with what Jameson, in his essay, The Antimonies of the Postmodern, uh, had to look that word up. Uh, antimonies is like uh, contradictions or paradoxes. So like the, the contradictions of the postmodern, if you will, calls a purely fungible present, another word I had to look up, uh, <laughs> and fungible, uh, it just refers to a system where it's based on parts that can be interchanged with identical items. So like an automated manufacturing sort of deal. Okay. The antimonies of the postmodern calls a purely fungible present in which space and psyches alike can be processed and remade at will. The reality here is akin to the multiplicity of options available on a digital document where no decision is final. Revisions are always possible and any previous moment can be recalled at any time. The middle manager I referred to above turned adaptation to this fungible reality into a fine art. He asserted with full confidence a story about the college and its future one day, what the implications of the inspection were likely to be, what senior management was thinking, then literally the next day would happily propound a story that directly contradicted what he previously said. There was never a question of his repudiating the previous story. It was as if he only dimly remembered there ever being another story. This, I suppose, is good management. It is also perhaps the only way to stay healthy amidst capitalism's perpetual instability. On the face of it, this manager is a model of beaming mental health, his whole being radiating a hail fellow well-met bonhomie. Uh, what does that, that word, mean? Uh, just means like a cheerful disposition. So just uh, to be clear, we have three, three. 
words of the day thus far. First page. First paragraph. First page. Oh, my that's God. All right. So, hey, that's our brains growing. Yep. Uh, I yep. wish I could pretend I always remembered word definitions after I looked them up, but uh, fungible, I think, will stick. He's used that like four times in this first paragraph. Well, and, you know, I am writing them down. I don't know what we're going to do with them yet, but we will do something with them, and uh, hopefully that will also help us remember them. Pretty soon we'll be selling our own SAT vocab prep. Right. Uh, <laughs> it'll be available on our website, uh, TBD. TBD. <laughs> Such cheerfulness can only be maintained if one has a near total absence of any critical reflexivity and a capacity, as he had, to cynically comply with every directive from bureaucratic authority. The cynicism of the compliance is essential, of course. The preservation of his 60s liberal self-image depended upon his not really believing in the auditing processes he so assiduously enforced. What this disavowal depends upon is the distinction between inner subjective attitude and outward behavior I discussed above. In terms of his inner subjective attitude, the manager is hostile, even contemptuous towards the bureaucratic procedures he supervises. But in terms of his outward behavior, he is perfectly compliant. Yet it is precisely workers' subjective disinvestment from auditing tasks, which enables them to continue to perform labor that is pointless and demoralizing. Uh, this is a conversation I get into with quite a few people I've uh, worked with in or known in my personal life about managers and what I view the role as a manager is, which is like not the, they're not the most talented person in the group. They're not the most knowledgeable person in the group. They are the person who is best willing to stick to the guidelines presented to them. I don't want to name any people, but I, uh, a person I'm very close with is often upset uh, that their managers just don't necessarily seem to know what they're doing or that the demands that they're making are silly uh, and not realistic. And I'm always like, I, you're totally right about that. Those are ridiculous demands. But I'm guessing somewhere your manager knows what it is, but that's why they're their manager because they will just fucking, you know, uh, push forward anything that's brought to them. Uh, and that is like, to me, and in all of my work experience, the number one quality of a manager is like, how much are they willing to stick to the company line? Uh, and how little are they willing to budge? Like, I think in a company's eyes, a good manager is somebody who's just willing to fucking do what they ask them to do. Uh, they don't want feedback. They don't want processes improved. They just want what they ask to fucking do, uh, be done, just be done. Uh, and it's not a great place for growth. <laughs> I've, uh, I've had a lot of managers that have said that they want feedback. And they might even be... Uh, they might outwardly seem excited that you gave them feedback, but I have never seen my feedback instituted or, oh. or like enacted upon, you know? So they'll be like, Oh, yeah. that's such a great idea. And then it just never gets done and I'll bring it up and they'll be again. And they'll be like, Oh, I forgot. Thank you. Yeah. That's such a good idea. And then it's like, <laughs> okay, well shit. All right. Keep in mind that so much of my work experience is on a corporate large scale level. I don't want to like shit on small businesses and stuff who don't fall subject to this. I'm sure there are managers out there uh, who are managers because they are the best person at that establishment and they know what they're doing and they're great to work for. Um, unfortunately, that has just been very elusive in my life. Do you mind uh, hitting the next one up for oh, us as well? Okay. Yeah, thanks, yeah. man. No problem, dude. The manager's capacity to smoothly migrate from one reality to another reminded me of nothing so much as Ursula Le Guin's... Are you familiar with that name? Mm -mm. Okay, me neither. No. The Lathe of Heaven. 
It is a novel about George Orr, a man whose dreams literally come true. In time-honored fairy tale fashion, however, the acts of wish fulfillment quickly become traumatic and catastrophic. When, for instance, a little bit of a monkey's paw sounds like, uh, when, for instance, Orr is induced by his therapist, Dr. Haber, into dreaming that the problem of overpopulation is solved, he wakes up to find himself in a world in which billions have been wiped out by a plague. A plague that, as Jameson put it in his discussion of the novel, was a hitherto non-existent event which rapidly finds its place in our chronological memory of the recent past. Trump better not find out about this book or that's going to be what he's talking about with coronavirus. Dude, we got to find George Orr. I know it's his fault. Much of the power of the novel consists in its rendering of these retrospective confabulations whose mechanics are at once so familiar because we perform them every night when we dream and so odd. How could it ever be possible for us to believe successive or even coextensive stories that so obviously contradict one another? Yet, we know from Kant, Nietzsche, and psychoanalysis that waking, as much as dreaming experience, depends upon just, su just such screening narratives. If the real is unbearable, any reality we construct must be a tissue of inconsistencies. What differentiates Kant, Nietzsche, and Freud from the tiresome cliché that life is but a dream is the sense that confabulations we live in are consensual. The idea that the world we experience is a solipsistic delusion projected from the interior of our mind consoles rather than disturbs us, since it conforms with our infantile fantasies of omnipotence, but the thought that our so-called interiority owe its existence to a fictionalized consensus will always carry an uncanny charge. Hold on, what, is, what does solipsistic mean? Uh, like, that's a great question. I don't know. Writing Solipsis, that one down. Solip yeah, um, it's based from solipsism, which is just the philosophical idea. So this is like Descartes' shit. Okay. The philosophical idea that only one's mind is sure to exist. Okay. Um, okay. So like, that's the only thing you can be sure of is that okay. you fucking exist. Okay. Oh, and then uh, there was another word. Oh, confabulation. Confabulations? Is, yeah. That's like, okay, okay. I thought that was a weird word choice because I didn't know all definitions. I'm guessing it's referring to its psychiatric definition, which is to fabricate imaginary experiences. Okay. Like while you're awake? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Has a compensation specifically generally to compensate for lost memories. Okay. Which makes sense when he's talking about that manager, like not remembering the story from the day before. All right, that makes that makes more sense there. God, he's just getting into such deep shit. I know. In these last few sentences, and shit that's deep to the point where it is certainly stuff I've thought about, but I, I sure don't think I could add anything. I'm I'm not even sure if I've thought about it, dude. Uh, what di differentiates Kant, Nietzsche, and Freud from the tiresome cliche that life is but a dream is the sense that the confabulations we live are consensual. So we choose to... Just um, the fact that we all kind of share if... Re I think it's referring to like if reality is a dream or like a matrix style thing or whatever. Uh, the fact that we share belief in all of these things justifies the reality more. Okay. Or, or or that we're just that that we are okay with mm -hmm. having these confabulations, you know. Yeah, and that like yeah, they probably and maybe he'll talk about it later. But I wish I don't understand which confabulations he's talking about. 
I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but like when I've thought about this shit uh, personally, I think about like there's so many false narratives that build up the American existence. I haven't lived in enough other places to really say that's true everywhere, but I would assume it is. Like we've talked about this in other episodes, like how America views its past is a complete confabulation. You know, like it's mm-hmm. kind of like shared memories of us like hanging out and helping Indians get feasts. You know, we just had to follow Manifest Destiny and, and get to the other side for the well-being of everybody uh, involved. And we often gloss over the fact that much of our place in the world today was built off of genocide and just the complete fucking disavowal of humanity uh, for okay. certain ethnicities and shit like that. Okay. You know, that I mean, sense. we're still to the point where assholes still fly Confederate flags. Uh, and right. get to walk around pretending that it's not about racism and slavery. Right. Uh, that they just got a little rebel in them. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> just that shit. I'll just finish to the last this paragraph and then okay. I want to start with or, the quote. Or, okay, you want me to start? Okay. The, yeah. Uh, with the quote. Okay. Yeah. The extra level of uncanniness is registered in the lathe of heaven when Le Guin has Orr's reality warping dreams witnessed by others. The therapist, Haber, who seeks to manipulate and control Orr's ability, and the lawyer, Heather Lalash, or Lalache, I don't know. Uh, what then is it like to live through someone else's dream coming true? Uh, uh, Haber could not go on talking. He felt he felt it. The shift, the arrival, the change. The woman felt it too. She looked frightened, holding the br- the brass necklace up close to her throat like a talisman. She was staring in dismay, shock, terror out of the window at the view what would it do to the woman what would it do to the woman would she understand would she go mad what would she do would she keep both memories as as he did the true one and the new one the old one and the true one does she go crazy no not at all after a few moments of bewildered fugue heather what what'd you say again I've never Lish. read the book Lalash. Lalash, okay. Accepts the new world as the true world, editing out the point of what's that word? Suture. Okay, uh, the point of suture. This strategy of accepting the incommensurable and the the senseless without question has always been the exemplary technique of sanity, as such but it has a special role to play in late capitalism. That motley painting of everything that ever was, whose dreaming up and junking of social fictions is nearly as rapid as it, its production and disposal of commodities. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All right. It's, I'm gonna... uh, it's just such a deep-ass subject to talk about, like, just the rea- the fabric of reality, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, we're all just snu- stuck in our own snapshot. You know, as like Socrates or Plato, Aristotle. Some of us maybe make more efforts to have a more examined life, um, but still, all of it is based on this accepted reality. Like I was never, you know, I'm super into history, uh, and in the back of my head, it's always like, well, shit, dude, I was not there you know, Dan Carlin, Hardcore History always talks about that academic lens where like I get to look at all of these things knowing what the outcome was or knowing what we think the outcome was. Um, so it's so hard for me to ever put the reality or the real memories of what happened into context. And so even with something that happened 30 years ago, 
I know how it concluded, so it it's already impossible for me to really understand the thing, how it happened. Um, and I think uh, that's kind of what he's referring to. And then it's like, I can also see like the benefit. If you're a group of terrible people and you've been doing terrible things, and then one day somebody comes around and is able to change that, and you're now doing, you know, things that you could call beneficial for society. If it's necessary to pretend you've always been that way to keep being that way, I just, I don't, I know it's fucked up, but if the end result is good, I, I don't know. It's such a fucking, yeah. I shouldn't have even started talking about it because it, it's a real, real large hole as to the fabric of reality, I guess. I don't know. Not just the fabric of reality for humanity, right? It's right. The, the fabric of, of reality or the realness or whatever in capitalist capitalism. Realism. Right, yeah, no, right. right. And I think like what's kind of been hinted at, or maybe I'm just making up my own narrative, is that like what sucks about capitalism is that it seems to absorb the most despised parts of the systems it says it's better than and just pretend that's not the fucking case. Yeah. To like criticize something for the exact same thing you're doing and not see that at all necessary to human existence all around like you know the shittiest systems when you read about the collapse of rome when you read about why uh europe went into that middle ages period and shit a lot of it was just due to them refusing to see the reality of the situations they were in i guess i i don't i don't agree with that i mean you know more about history than i do but i would say that it was more about like uh, the material conditions, you know, yeah, like well, um, inequality pops up in a huge way, uh, yeah. and the ruling class refuses to acknowledge okay. it. They okay. just, you know, they pretend that's not the case. That fucking people or that have it's not a problem. Problem, right? Because right? people have iPhones, so how could it be that bad? Right, you know? right. <clears throat> but I was going to. Um, God damn it! I had a fucking thing I wanted Sorry. to say that had to do with not acknowledging stuff in capitalism, but. It's it's whatever. Um, let uh, I'll continue. It comes back. Yeah. Yeah. In these condition conditions of ontological precarity, forgetting becomes an adaptive strategy. Okay, we were just talking about that. I know I, a a veteran of war that I and well and and you know I'm sure we've all heard about or talked to people like this that really just like don't want to talk about the war that they were in and don't want to think about the war that helps you cope with what you're going through you know uh to a lesser extent and maybe this isn't what he's talking about at all like with work just being like i don't know or i can't remember what happened last week or when people were will ask like oh how was mother's day at this job last year you're like dude i can't remember um it's just easier to like forget forget work than it is to uh to to remember it okay take the example of gordon brown whose expedient reinvention of his political identity involved an attempt to induce a collective forgetting in an article in international socialism uh john newsinger remembers how Brown told the Confederation of British Industry Conference that business is in my blood. His mother had been a company director and, quote, I was brought up in an atmosphere where I knew exactly what was happening as far as business was concerned, end quote. He was indeed, he was indeed, 
he had always been, comma, one of them. The only problem is that it was not true. As his mother subsequently admitted, she would never have called herself a businesswoman, in parentheses. She had only ever done some light administrative duties for a small family firm and had given up the job when she married, three years before young Gordon was even born. While there have been uh, labor politicians who have tried to invent working class backgrounds for themselves before, Brown is the first to try and invent a capitalist background. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, not the same sort of thing, but just like with um, the, uh, the Bush family being from like Connecticut or whatever, and, uh, but they act like they've always been from Texas. Always been Texas ranchers. Uh, or like uh, this immediately brought up this fucking stupid story Ivanka Trump tells all the time about how she had her perseverance as a salesman from day one because of a lemonade stand she set up. Uh, and since they lived in a gated neighborhood, people couldn't get through. So she asked her dad to make all the construction workers come through and buy lemonade from her. For her to see that as an act of her own perseverance is just such a fucking fake dumb memory. <laughs> like, I don't know. And that's how they paint themselves. Like, I've always worked hard. Uh, like, when I was a kid, had a lemonade stand that people were forced to buy from, from my father. You know, I mean, it's just yep. such a disconnect where they really do think that they have the common background and the common experiences of the kid who was working at McDonald's when he was 14 or whatever. It's just fucking... And this doesn't, uh, this doesn't tie into the text at all, but you like to do uh, non-text related things, so I'll throw mm -hmm. one up. Do fucking it. one of my favorite, uh, Ivanka talking about her father's stories is... Uh, her and her father in the like early uh, 90s were walking in New York and there was a homeless guy. Trump points to the homeless guy and he's like, that guy has more money than I do. And Ivanka's like, what do you mean? And, and Trump's like, well, I'm, you know, a hundred million in debt and that guy has no debt. And I just yeah. find that so like to, to see yourself like that, um, <laughs> to, to not understand the difference there is just insane, you know? Yeah. No, it's uh, the definition of privilege. Yep. Like, yep. It just yep. fucking really is. As they, like, go up to their penthouse apartment on the top of Trump right. Tower yep. uh, and shit in their golden toilet, Trump right. is literally feeling jealousy for a homeless man. Right, uh, right. Which I think says a lot about this administration. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, seriously. Yep. Dude, these poor people just don't know how bad I fucking have it. And right. If these poor people could understand what it's like to have to pay taxes when you're making billions, they would get it. They would yep. get it. Um, are you doing the next one? Sure, if you want me to. Yeah. Okay. Um, Newsinger contrasts Brown with his rival and predecessor as British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, a very different case. While Blair, who presented the strange spectacle of a postmodern uh, messianism, never had any beliefs that he had to recant on, Brown's move from Presbyterian socialist to new labor supremo was a long, arduous, and painful process of repudiation and denial. <clears throat> Whereas for Blair, the embrace of neoliberalism involved no great personal struggle because he had no previous beliefs to dispose of. Newsinger writes, for Brown, it involved a deliberate decision to change sides. The effort, one suspects, damaged his personality. Blair was the last man by nature and inclination. Brown has become the last man, the dwarf at the end of history by force of will. I just don't know enough about UK politics. No. Mm -mm. Um, mm -mm. Mm -mm. 
I, I know I don't love anything Tony Blair says. That's, that's my extent. <laughs> Blair was the man without a chest. The outsider the party needed in order to get into power. His Joker hysterical face, <laughs> salesman smooth. Brown's implausible act of self-reinvention is what the party itself had to go through. His fake smile grimace, the objective correlative of labor's real state now that it is completely capitulated to capitalist realism. Gutted and gutless, its insides replaced by a simul <clears throat> simulacra which once looked lustrous but now possess all the allure of decade-old computer technology. Um, In we, know, we know from previous yes. fucking words of the day that simulacra has to do with insect proteins yes. hardening. Yep. And that's exciting. It is. At least for me, because I was like, wait, what? No. And I was like, oh, no, I do know what that means. This. Yep. I can't wait till the day that I have a position to use that word in real life. Oh, my God. whether or not it hints at the insect-like nature of who you're referring to, I like to pretend it does. <laughs> right, right. In conditions where realities and identities are upgraded like software, it is not surprising that memory disorders should have become the focus of cultural anxiety. See, for instance, the Bourne films, Memento, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. In the Bourne films, Jason Bourne's quest to regain his identity goes alongside a continual flight from any settled sense of self. Try to understand me, says Bourne in the original novel by Robert Ludlum. Just going to interrupt to say, like, holy fuck, has this concept gone into hyper gear in the last, you know, in the Trump administration. Okay. Uh, I'm always blown away by how little they have to care about the lies they tell. Okay. Um, you know, well, but but th these aren't about lies that like memento eternal sunshine of the spotless mind born is about the loss of memory. Right. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like the fact that. OK, the fact that it's only May and most Trump supporters pretend like Trump has always taken the coronavirus seriously and has been doing everything he needed to do about it. It's still not happening. Yet the memory of what happened in January, February and March has already been replaced by the concept that the Democrats fucked this up, that mm -hmm. he was trying to do stuff and the Democrats are being like, stop, that's racist, can't do this. You know, that is the actual narrative they go with, not a, even a month after that shit went down. And that's like what I mean. Like they are so able to not only switch the opinion that they put forward, but to present a reality where that's always the opinion they had and that's always the actions they were taking. Um, and when you bring up anything else, Instead of de debating that, they'll just be like, well, fucking Obama did this, or mm -hmm. what about Biden in this? And it's like, no, 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 that's not the conversation. The conversation is that this wasn't your fucking viewpoint a week ago. How did you change it that fast? And I can never get that answer because it's just not, it's not a reality that the people I've encountered are willing to uh, acknowledge. Yeah. Try to understand me, says Bourne in the original novel by Robert Ludlum. I have to know, here's a quote from the book. I have to know certain things, enough to make a decision, but maybe not everything. A part of me has to be able to walk away, disappear. I have to be able to say to myself, what was isn't any longer, and there's a possibility that it never was because I have no memory of it. What a person can't remember didn't exist for him. In the films, Bourne's transnational nomadicism is rendered in an ultra-fast cutting style which functions as a kind of anti-memory, pitching the viewer into the vertiginous. Whoa, 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 whoa. Vertiguous? What is going on there? Causing vertigo. 
Okay. Especially okay. by being extremely high or steep. Okay. Tight. Okay. Pitching the viewer into the vertiginous continuous present. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. There's some fast cuts yep. in that movie. Uh, which Jameson argues is a characteristic of postmodern temporality. The complex plotting of Ludlum's novels is transformed into a series of evanescent event ciphers and action set pieces which barely cohere into an intelligible narrative. Bereft of personal history, Bourne lacks narrative memory but retains what we might call formal memory, a memory of techniques, practices, actions that is literally embodied in a series of physical reflexes and tics. Here, Bourne's damaged memory echoes the postmodern nostalgia mode as described by Frederick Jameson, in which contemporary or even futuristic reference at the level of content obscure a reliance on established or antiquated models at the level of form. On the one hand, this is a culture that privileges only the present and the immediate. The extirpation of the long term extends backwards as well as forwards in time. For example, media stories monopolize attention for a week or so, then are instantly forgotten. On the other hand, it is a culture that is excessively nostalgic, given over to retrospection and capable of generating any authentic novelty. It may be that Jameson's identification and analysis of this temporal antimony is his most important contribution to our understanding of postmodern slash post-Fordist culture. The paradox from which he must set forth, he argues, in antimonies of the postmodern. Uh, once again, grammatical oddities. Why is that T? in brackets i have no idea yeah that um, that is weird and crazy it's new well so uh once again he argues in the antimonies of the postmodern is the equivalence between an unparalleled rate of change on all the levels of social life and an unparalleled standardization of everything feelings along with consumer goods language along with built space what would seem incompatible with such mutability what then dawns is the realization that no society has ever been as standardized as this one, and that the stream of human, social, and historical temporality has never qu flowed quite so homogeneously. What we now begin to feel, therefore, and what begins to emerge as some deeper and more fundamental constitution of postmodernity post itself, at least in its temporal dimension, is henceforth where everything now submits to the perpetual change of fashion and media image that nothing can change any longer i was I, on track until uh that nothing can change any longer i don't know what he's said, talking about exactly what i will bring up and this could be so off point but once again that's fine for me to be off point i just think about how his time has gone on how much harder it is to differentiate between decades based solely off how the people look in that mm. decade like a couple shows i've been watching recently that are in modern times uh, and have partially a story focused on like a high school or whatever, I look at those kids and I'm just like, damn, they dress exactly like I did 20 fucking years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas 20 years ago, if I looked at pictures of what kids dressed like 20 years prior to that, it was night and fucking day. If I look at how my parents dressed when they were at that age, oh my God, it was shockingly different. And now I feel like since the 90s, minus some big pants sections and things like that, people have looked pretty similar for a, a, like that part of society doesn't seem to be as important. Like having an aesthetic style to your time period seems to be drifting away is kind of one of the things I thought about while reading that. And, and I think that has to do um, more with, and this isn't like with the, uh, 
necessarily with the text, but like how, uh, and there's this uh, Adam Curtis documentary that, that talks a little bit about this called uh, Hypernationalism, but he talks about how like once the 70s came around, what once had been about political action as a collective turned yeah. into individual self-expression. The ta- he does yeah. some Patti Smith quotes and whatever, just about them being so disillusioned by like Vietnam, basically that they had spent right. years and years protesting and even like blowing buildings up and stuff and sh- still yeah, nothing was uh, changing. And so they turned inward and it became about your own fashion and about how you express yourself and whatever. And, and from then you can see a fragmentation of uh, like subcultures and countercultures that were about uh, self-expression. You were saying like with the, and, and, and maybe it's just that I don't know enough about fashion from the fifties. Maybe there was a lot more variation, you know, but obviously when you think about like eighties or nineties, you have people in, in clusters that used fashion or that continue to use fashion as a way to represent the subculture they're a part of. Does that make sense? Right. No, and, oh, for and, sure. and not just like, you know, goth or whatever, but like, I think about the, all the dudes in the like khaki pants with the blue button up and then the yeah. Patagonia vest, yes. you know, like that is very clearly, I am part of this like tech. Um, Whole foods. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Maybe even a little bit of that like uh, liberal communism sort of thing mm-hmm. we were talking about. Oh, well, you know, I, I go to Whole Foods to, to help all the natives across the world. Right. Um, Have you seen my Toms? Right. Exactly. You know yeah. What happens yeah. when you buy yeah. a pair of yeah. Toms? Right. Exactly. Um. <laughs> um, uh, where are we? Oh, okay. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do this one. Okay. No doubt. This is another example of the struggle between the forces of deterritorialization and re-territorialization, which Deleuze and uh, Guattari argue is constitutive of capitalism as such. It would be surprising if profound social and economic instability resulted in a craving for familiar cultural forms to which we return in the same way that Bourne reverts to his core uh, reflexes. This memory uh, disorder that is a correlative of this situation is the condition which afflicts Leonard, Leonard in Memento. Theoretically, pure antograde amnesia. Is that, what is that word? Uh, like, I don't know. I think it's anterograde. I don't know what it was. When I went over it, I was like, I don't know if I need to know what all types of... Uh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, but let's, let's find out. Okay. And, oh, okay. It is the loss of the ability to create new memories, um, but still allowing you to recall the past, okay. uh, your long-term memories. So you can't form any new memories, but that didn't take away your old memories. Okay. Okay. So anterograde am- amnesia. Here, memories prior to the onset of the condition are left intact, but sufferers are unable to trans- transfer new memories into long-term memory. The new, therefore, looms up as hostile, fleeting, unnavigable, unnavigable, and the sufferer is drawn back to the security of the old. The inability to make new memories a succinct, formulation of the postmodern impasse. If memory disorder provides a compelling analog for the glitches in capitalist realism, the modern 
for its smooth functioning uh, would be dream work. When we are dreaming, we forget, but immediately forget that we have done so. Since the gaps and uh, what is this word? Uh, lacunae. Oh my God, dude. Uh, so no. many of these words today. I just love to imagine that there's people that just read this and know all, know all these, these words. words? Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, it's an unfilled space or interval. Okay. Okay. So, but immediately forget that we have done so. Since the gaps and lacunae in our memories are photoshopped out, they do not trouble or torment us. What dream work does is to produce a confabulated consistency which covers over anomalies and contradictions. And it is this which Wendy Brown picked up on when she argued that it was precisely dream work which provided the best model for understanding contemporary forms of power. In her essay, American Nightmare, Neoconservatism, Neoliberalism, and De-Democratization, Brown unpicked the alliance between neoconservatism and neoliberalism, which constituted an American version of capitalist realism up until 2008. Brown shows that the neoliberalism and neoconservatism operating from premises which are not only inconsistent but directly contradictory. How, Brown asks, does a nationality that is expressly amoral at the level of both ends and means, neoliberalism, intersect with one that is expressly moral and regulatory, neoconservatism? How does a project that empties the world of meaning that cheapens and uh deracinates oh my god dude it's so crazy that eventually i just get to a point where i've looked up so many words that i think (laughs) i just i'm like i'll just pretend i know this word tight the definition is another term for deracine uh up to uproot okay uproot okay to uh, um that cheapens and deracinates life and openly exploits desire, interest, w- exploits desire, intersect one centered on fixing and enforcing meanings, conserving certain ways of life, and repressing and regulating desire. How does support of governance modeled on the firm and normative social fabric of self-interest marry or jostle against the support for governance modeled on church authority and a normative social fabric of self-sacrifice and long-term, what the fuck is that? Filial? I've seen that word before, but I uh, didn't bother looking up. Uh, filial loyalty. Filial. Uh, it's like hereditary loyalty. So like the loyalty from your son or, uh, but I think it can expand outside of just like, blood relations you're just loyalty out of tradition might okay might be. uh feel your loyalty the very fabric shredded by unbridled capitalism but incoherence at the level of, of what brown calls political rationality does nothing to prevent uh symbiosis yeah yep. at the level of political subjectivity and although they proceed from very different guiding assumptions, Brown argues that neoliberalism and neoconservatism work together to undermine the public sphere and democracy, producing a governance 
a governed citizen who looks to find solutions in products, not political process. As Brown claims, the choosing subject at the governed, wait, yeah, the choosing subject and the governed subject are far from opposites. Frankfurt School intellectuals and before them, Plato theorized that one compatibility between individual choice and political domination and depicted democratic subjects who are available to political tyranny or tyranny or authoritarianism precisely because they are absorbed in a province of choice. Is that province? Mm -hmm. Okay. In a province of choice and need satisfaction that they mistake for freedom. Um, I'll be super honest. Plato is the closest I get to being kind of an authoritarian because I do, I don't think it's realistic. And even when he talks about it, he's just referring to a perfectly governed city. I don't know if he, he would have had to have some knowledge of how large empires could be, but his thing is always just about a perfectly governed city. And so like they kind of have like different classes. You have um, your working class, but it's separated a little differently in the sense that they work in what they like to work. Like nobody is forced to follow passions that they're not into. Um, but the working class is like the producers of the society, but it's not like a denigrated class. And then there is a class, I think it's called guardians. And these guardians sole role is to foster and pick the next ruler. Um, and the guardians have this super limited life. They are themselves protected from a lot of like the negative aspects of like greed and shit like that. Um, and they're not allowed to interact with money. They're not allowed to own anything. Um, so the concept of like ownership and shit won't come into or greed won't come into any of their thought processes. And then they select and teach whoever the next philosopher king will be or whatever. Theory behind that is, is kind of what they were saying there, like giving people a choice if they're not educated on that choice isn't an effective system of governance, I guess was kind of his argument against democracy a lot of the time. Like I said, that's the farthest that I get into having like an authoritarian like understanding and that's not how plato presents it but i think that's how it would be viewed if a society was like set up like that today comes down to that argument and that thing we've talked about before where it's like is democracy just an the way that we practice it in america is it just the illusion of a choice we've talked about before i've never actually voted for somebody who i truly enjoy you know mm -hmm. like i've made capitulations and said this is better than the other choice but it's not like I really have the ability to vote for somebody who's like, you know what? Fuck billionaires. I'm fucking sick of the inequality here. We have enough money to give everybody a much better um, existence. And we need to be fucking more socially responsible, not only for the present generation, but for the thought of the preservation uh, of this beautiful place for future generations. And I've never been presented with that choice. Granted, I live in America. I do think that there are EU nations who do have politicians who have that sort of rhetoric. I'm not positive. But, I, you know, I know they have actual communist parties. They have actual labor parties. Yeah, and shit. but I um, mean, and I haven't looked into this, so I don't know. But Destiny is always saying that those parties are like super marginal now. That although they might, more, more, yeah. uh, they might have had some like parliamentary like weight. Some of the people that Destiny interacts with say stuff like in Europe, Bernie Sanders is considered a conservative. And so I guess Destiny got a little pissed about that and, and did some research and he called some people out the next time they said that. And he was like, no, no, that's not true. Communists and socialist parties in the majority of Europe are marginal and some of them just like haven't held seats in a long time. 
So, right. so I don't know what's well, going I on think, with that. Yeah, long time might be an exaggeration. And, and Destiny, I'm sure, knows way more about this shit than I do. But what I will say is that that crash of 08 obviously affected America a lot, but holy fuck did it affect the EU. And one thing that brings me comfort is that the last time nationalism tried to have a rise this intense in Europe, uh, it obviously had way, and you know, this could still erupt, but it had a much more severe effects much more quickly. I will say, obviously, they have stepped, the EU in general uh, has gotten more conservative, but Le Pen didn't win, Macron did. I think it could have gotten a lot worse, uh, and I think that that pendulum swing will come back, especially post-coronavirus, for real, I think. Yeah, Um, it it very well might, but just remember when you say uh, Le Pen didn't win, uh, Macron did. Lacron is definitely not he's a neoliberal in, in, for right, sure in the category of, of <laughs> politicians you were talking about someone that is invested in in egalitarianism right. for but, now and future yeah. yeah and i guess my point would be like at least the majority of those countries didn't elect trump um, yes. now italy did italy did but right. they're already uh, hungry is in that, that. Uh, yeah. position yep. i think reese is is doing something similar yes. Uh, you want to finish paragraph. it? Yeah, finish her off here. No, you finish her up. Okay, extrapolating, extrapolating a little from Brown's argument, we might hypothesize that what held the bizarre synthesis, synthesis of neoconservatism and neoliberalism together was their shared objects of abomination, the so-called nanny state and its dependence. Despite evincing, evincing, what is that? Uh, being reminiscent, I think. Okay. Uh, Kind of like evoking? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Despite invincing in anti-state rhetoric, neoliberalism is in practice not opposed to the state per se, as the bank bailouts of 08 demonstrated, but rather to to particular uses of state funds. Meanwhile, neoconservatism's strong state was confined to military and police functions and defined itself against a welfare state held to undermine individual moral responsibility. All right, so that wraps up chapter seven. What I, I wrote down this, uh, this Wendy Brown's essay, I think at some point I would like to uh, uh, review that essay just because the excerpts we read were really on point really on point and i you know it is interesting because so often conservatism or the right side of the political spectrum has a lot of ideas that um on the surface are very opposed to one another and maybe don't aren't ideologically consistent and so i really like uh people that dig down a little bit and are able to show you where those consistencies actually right. are. Like individual how... responsibility to have money, but not individual responsibility to be responsible. <laughs> like that sort of shit, you know? Like, right, yeah. Sure, burn down the forest, but make sure you can fucking pay your rent. Yeah, so, uh, so I, would, uh, I would love to read her stuff. And that's another thing that I pointed this out last week uh, or last episode or whatever, but this is another example where we um, started this chapter and by the mid of the chapter, I was really struggling. I was just like, I don't get what's going on. I don't understand why. I, I don't even understand what's going on. And then we get to the last little bit of the chapter. And this doesn't mean that I understood the middle of the chapter, 
but I got something out of the chapter by the end. The end, yeah. I was like, oh, I understand what's being said here and I like what's being said and I can relate to it. And so that's why it's so important for myself and, and others to keep slogging ahead or keep marching ahead, even if you're having problems at times comprehending what's what's being said in, in this, in a text. And Fisher like does a thing that in my mind, a lot of times like bringing up Born and Memento, I was like, where the fuck is he going with this? Mm -hmm. uh, and even while reading the quotes and shit, I'm still just like, where the fuck is he going with this? And then he'll wrap it up. I'm like, oh, holy fuck, that was a genius analogy. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Because like with the Born, I was like, what the hell? And then when he got into form memory, I was like, damn, that is a great example of that. And if he hadn't used that example, I don't think I would have known what the fuck he was talking about. Uh, the other thing I loved about him talking about Born is that uh, we might not remember two months ago what Trump said. We might not remember Japanese internment camps. We might not remember the fact that we didn't have to use the atomic bomb on Japan, but we chose to so we could uh, show our big dick to the USSR, yeah. right? Yeah. But we all do remember the actions, whatever he called it. We don't remember history, but we remember how to get up on time to go to work, how yeah. to get to work. We remember how to consume. We remember that we enjoy, including myself, purchasing items and yep. having them show up in the Amazon package and opening it up, having your, your little Christmas, you know, every day or yeah. week or whatever. And I just love that analogy. Just being able to, to find that in, in a movie and be like, oh, dude, that's so is yeah. representative of the culture that especially this movie like the movie being the born movies uh, right which i can tell you i never went into with critical thought no like, no, <laughs> no not at all and that's what these people that, <laughs> that are into uh cultural criticism or whatever i i just really admire that they can um fascinate my favorite example and sorry to just keep babbling is starship fucking troopers dude yeah yep. uh, i watched that movie so many times as a young person just being like this is a fun movie with titties in it and then as an adult like i just didn't realize that it was a satirical expose on how america kind of views itself and you know i mean it's just fun i i like it when people are able to get their message across in a way where people don't even understand they're watching the message Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like that's almost necessary for a lot of the American population. It's like the second you tell them you're trying to teach them something, uh, I guess to like a John Locke theory or whatever, they just don't want to learn it anymore. Um, but if you let people learn shit on their own or gather it on their own, they're usually a lot more conducive to it. And I totally. forget that shit a lot when I'm trying to explain shit to people. Totally, totally. Oh man, this person probably doesn't want to learn this right now, but I'm going to force it on them anyway. Super cool. Uh, this episode has gone a little bit longer than normal, but we're okay with that. It's just to make are, up for the four parts of chapter six, you know? Right, seriously. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. We are uh, marching ahead. Next episode will be chapter eight, Capitalist Realism. There's no central exchange is the name of the chapter. Uh, we look forward to y'all joining us then. Thank you very much. Have a great day.